This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. In each episode, we bring you information, insights, and ideas from some of the industry's top thought leaders. Connect with us to help pick the topic and guide the show. This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. I'm coming at you live from the terminal of Brisbane Airport. I'm not really, but my house seems to be under a flight path. I've noticed recording podcasts during the day is problematic because I seem to just have a plane flying over every three minutes, but that's okay. We shall persevere. Um, One of the things that's really cool about this episode, and probably the reason I'm recording it on short notice, is it's a very special episode. We've got a returning guest, Mr. David Fish. Now, he was previously on an episode titled Sell the Dish, Not the Ingredients. He is coming back today, and it's all, I guess, in celebration of a new book that he has just had published called, wait for it, The Art of Strategic Storytelling, What It Takes to Create Winning Presentations. Now, I was very fortunate. I actually got to proofread the first draft of this book, and it is so cool to see it finally published and in final form. Uh, Fishy actually sent me a copy last week. Uh, It's here in front of me. It looks beautiful. It smells beautiful like a new book should. And if the first draft is anything to go by, this draft is just going to be absolutely incredible. So we are going to dive into the book. We're going to dive into some of the frameworks. We're going to dive into some of the philosophies that underpin the whole idea of strategic storytelling, hopefully give you some tips and tactics on how to simplify, how to tailor to the audience, how to really make sure that the proposal works as hard as it can. And I think Fishy and I are both very aligned in what what is most important a lot of the time in our industry, which is simplification, making things easy to understand, making things easy to on present, making things easy to on sell to internal stakeholders. So there's going to be some cool frameworks. Keep your ears peeled too. There's a couple of special guests who are going to drop into the podcast just to wish some good luck to Fishy with the release of the book. We've also got a special guest who has submitted the listener question this week. Um, anyone in the industry will be familiar with this particular person, and I'm really jazzed that uh, that he's an avid listener of the podcast and contributed this question as well. And before I dive into the interview, one final piece of, uh, I guess, information, I guess a bit of a life update from me, is that I'm actually uh, changing roles. So I've just finished up at O Media after three amazing years. I was the Queensland State Sales Director there, and it was three of probably the most challenging but the most rewarding years of my career. Out of home during COVID, really, really interesting channel to be in, definitely some dark times there. Um, But I'm so proud of the team and what we achieved in that time, Um, you know, from our internal culture to our customer NPS scores to certainly revenue, which is what it's all about. Um, I was very bittersweet to leave O, um, not something I was planning, but I was actually engaged by a company called Boost Media International with an opportunity I just couldn't refuse. So as of July, I'm coming on board with Boost as the global sales director. Now, Boost are a consultancy advisory business that specialize in working with media companies all around the world to help them drive new revenues, increase their customer base, and effectively build long-term sustainable sources of revenue for the business. Um, We have a number of clients all around the world, everywhere from Dubai to, uh, to India to South Africa to Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand, of course. And what I'm particularly excited about with this role is it's going to give me the opportunity to travel, to meet different media business leaders all around the world. And so what I'm hoping is that this podcast will 
you know, increasingly have more face-to-face interviews as I travel around and meet different people. Um, if you want to know more about Boost, uh, check out my LinkedIn profile. Um, it's a really cool business. It's it's you know unrivaled in in a global context. It's one of the one of the best types of business that does this particular type of media consulting advisory. I'm thrilled to be part of the team and I look forward to updating uh, as the podcast continues as to where this new role takes me. Without any further delay though, uh, let's jump into the interview with Fishy. Keep your ears peeled because he is offering up five free books for Media Sales Mastery listeners and a very healthy discount or if you want to use a different word, a heavily incentivized price point for listeners of the pod. So check that out as well time to get into it the first five welcome back mr fish good morning how are you i'm very well mate i mean how are you how does it feel to have uh to be a published author (laughs) it's still a weird concept saying author um and i I have to say i'm still i'm still nervous sharing so much ip in once at one time you know you you, we go through life like little 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 bits out and sharing bits of our our thinking to to put 220 words out into the world at once and then be receiving feedback, which I have to say so far, all the feedback's been amazing uh, and the support through the process has been amazing. Uh, really enjoying the journey. You know, it's interesting. I heard heard an expression the other day that you give information away for free, but you sell curation, which it sounds like is what you're doing. You're sort of curating all of this information down into, a, into one sort of, you know, 200 page book that people can read at their leisure, which is all sequenced and distilled down into, um, you know, into its own self-contained little, little, uh, little piece of gold. Yeah. I, I love that quote. I think that's, I think that's true. I think, um, you know, there's a difference between reading something and the experience of me being animated in a room and spending time with people and working hands-on in, in, in presentations, whether that's in coaching or in training. And so I'll absolutely still be doing that. Um, but the book gives me a, an ability to solve some of the problems out in the world that, that I won't get to solve face-to-face with everybody. So what, what was the inspiration to finally do the book? Because it is a big undertaking to write a book. It's, it, I imagine it's a big process. What, what was it that finally tipped you over the edge? The first is that this is a consistent theme through my career and it, it remains a problem. And that is that there's too many great ideas that get lost in average, boring, long, complex, confusing presentations. If you think about the amount of time we invest in creating solutions, coming up with ideas, um, taking products to market for them to lose the sale, for them to not connect with an audience because of how they're packaged and how they're presented. And that that remains an ongoing issue. And, it, and it's not helped by the fact that we have this overemphasis on speaker training. We spend so much time training to people to be better presenters on their feet. And it's not solving the underlying sales issue, which is that an AM needs to be empowered with a presentation that supports them to present content that people connect to and can present on and and that's really what it was that motivated me there's there's very very little support for your audience to create and deliver presentations that help them win i agree with you that there does seem to be a bit of a i'm not going to say an epidemic but there is a there is a real issue with these dull overly complex jargon-filled presentations like why is that such a common occurrence is, has that always been the way from your observation or, or do you feel like that's actually becoming more of an issue? Uh, like what are the causal factors that are leading to us having all of these proposals that are so, you know, so difficult to interpret and, and understand? There's two things. One is a, uh, a consistent piece, which has been around for a while, which is the starting point. Um, people don't start with the audience in mind. They don't start with a, uh, what the audience needs or solving a problem that the audience has. And when we're not clear about the audience up front, we start with a presentation that's all about us. 
Um, and when we start with a presentation that's all about us, it starts off with the potential to be uh, incredibly boring. Um, it also has very limited structure. And then the internal language, the complex descriptions, the things that are known well to the people who are building those presentations leak into the slide. And that can be incredibly confusing to an audience that doesn't live and breathe that content every day because there's no controls over how that content gets put together and put into that presentation. The second thing that I think is more of a timely piece is that there's an explosion of what I call stuff. People are creating more products, particularly in media. It's kind of easy to create a service product, um, to add another ad unit or to create another digital product, um, to take something else to market or to put a couple of things together. Um, we've got a lot of mergers. We've got a lot of um, uh, things coming together and it's creating a need to put more out into the market. There are more media owners vying for the attention of agencies. There are more internal agency meetings covering off their own product offerings. And at the same time, there's fewer occasions to actually present to those teams because of the number of people in the office, um, hybrid working environments where not everyone's in every day. And so when people get a, an opportunity to present, they cram as much as possible into that presentation because it's like, this might be our one opportunity this quarter. But what it does is it explodes the presentation into this big, unwieldy, difficult to present and really hard to consume presentation. And so that those two things, when they combine, really amplify this problem. Yeah, I, I think you've nailed that because coming from publisher side, what is really interesting and feels a bit counterintuitive sometimes is that innovation actually, media innovation and new product offerings and reformulating your proposition, it kind of gives you a fresh and a new reason to go to market. Um, so I think that's a really it's important to unpack why that's happening is that there's definitely a perception that going to market with a new thing or creating new stuff or innovating in new products, it just gives you another valid business reason to go and vie for the attention of a client or an agency. Um, so really interesting to hear that what that's actually leading to um, is probably more muddy water flowing into agencies and, and us actually being less effective. Uh, it's a great point. It, it's okay to set that innovation to market. It's a great way to get, uh, you know, the, the valid business reason, the reason to have a conversation. But make that innovation about the person you're presenting to. Solve something that they're thinking about and give them a reason to care about that content. And then don't jam six or seven other pieces of content on the back end just because you've got the meeting. Mm. And that's where it goes wrong. It's like, oh, we've got this great new idea. And by the way, here's our seven other or 17 other or 37 other things that I want to sell to you at the same time. Um, and it leaves the audience overwhelmed. Um, you went in to sell this beautiful piece of innovation that you could have tuned really nicely to a specific problem, um, whether that's a macro problem, an industry problem, or a specific client problem, and really connected that content to the audience. And yet they've walked away from maybe 45 minutes of 60 slides uh, with their head spinning and not quite sure what to do next. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I can understand how that happens as a natural consequence of People are in the office less. The opportunity to meet somebody face-to-face -face is more finite. You have 60 minutes or 45 minutes of someone's undivided attention. You want to limit your downside and you want to squeeze as much as possible into that meeting versus potentially kind of the opposite of leading with one really strong proposition or idea or opportunity and really making sure that you tailor that meeting to that specific opportunity. 100%. And when you present well... And when you present stories and when you engage an audience, you create the opportunity to present again. When you confuse, overwhelm, bore an audience, you close the door for a few months before you get the opportunity to present again. So it's counterintuitive, but that little bit of discipline um, to get structure to presentations and engage an audience and make it an enjoyable experience actually makes the opportunity, creates opportunities 
um, to sell more down the road. Well, that is a perfect setup to jump into our main topic. Media Sales Mastery. So we're not going to go into all of the frameworks in the book. I think there's about 12 frameworks, but we're going to cover off maybe four or five of the main areas of of winning presentations, at least from my perspective, and I'd, I'd love to kind of hear your take on things. First and foremost, let's talk about our audience for a presentation. How does somebody really understand and know the audience they're presenting to? How do we identify what matters to them? Awesome question. Um, so first up, in my experience, most people know more about their audience than they realize. They just haven't taken the time to put themselves in the shoes walking the, the the lives of those people and think about them and think about what they need before they start creating slides. And, and that's really the first mistake is to start creating a presentation without thinking about the audience. So at the most basic level, every presentation needs to solve a problem that the audience wants solved. Whether they've expressed they've got that problem or you know it exists or you know you have a solution that can overcome certain problems and you find clients that have those types of problems. We need to solve something for somebody. Without that... We've got to set aside the fishing for a reason to exist. That becomes a numbers game. You present enough times and you might find a buyer who has that problem. And ultimately, that's not a great sales strategy. If you if you have the time to present 100 times and you can get 100 meetings to get one sale, great. But there's a better way of doing it. And that is to think about the audience. And we think about the audience through two lenses. The first is the persona, which unpacks the attributes that define the roles that we want to sell into. So if we think about roles... Although across the industry, everyone's got different titles and peg things at different levels. There are people in these roles and there are stereotypical attributes of the people in those roles because these roles are occupied by people. So we think about them as people and what they care about, what they're motivated by, what they're interested in and how well they know your topic, the, the subject matter that you are an expert in and your business. That is an amazing starting point to help you tune things like language, how much detail you go into explain something what topics you avoid because you know they're turnoffs. Just that persona, which you can do on a page and you can do it actually very quickly, will frame the content to appeal to them. It talks to a specific person who you can help, someone who can carry your ideas forward. And that is the absolute critical part to winning. Your first presentation has to connect with someone who will do something with it or it's game over. So just that persona helps us tune the next level, having done that work, is you can go into what I call the, the more interesting and more powerful understanding, and that's their wants and needs. We want to move from this functional understanding, the functional requirements of what they want, down into what sits behind that, and that's unpacking spoken and unspoken needs. And that's really where the gold lies. We have to give the audience what they want, but if we can solve for someone's underlying needs, we create a really personal connection. It's highly relevant. It moves us from being purely rational and gets this deep emotional connection. So if you think about that in things like um, if you can help present to someone in their role and their role, they want to stand out or they want to get praise or they want some recognition, or you simply make it easy for them to present your, your ideas, you're solving for a need that they have. When they go through your 60 slides, you've given them one slide that is solving for a need that they have. They need to be able to quickly find the content that they need to present your ideas. When we tune into someone's needs, our presentation goes from being all about us, all about what we want to sell to adding genuine value to the person we're presenting to. Now, this is super easy. You can actually do this. It's, it's all detailed in the book, um, the persona and the needs uncovery. It's a really quick exercise. And every time I do this with people, I find that they know more about their audience than they, than they realize. I don't give them the answers. They, they surface what they know and the template just guides you to do that. I remember when I was reading the 
the first draft of the book, I loved just that visual layout that you had for the template as well. Like it's it's really easy to sit there and go, wow, that's a blind spot. You know, that's something about that person I didn't even care to consider. But if if left unaddressed, I could have probably squandered the whole opportunity. I mean, I speak a lot about um, internal business cases and internal persuasion. I've been doing a lot more of that lately on the podcast. And one of the revelations I remember having early in my career was as salespeople, we're typically attuned to selling, a lot of the time, selling revenue upside when we're putting business cases up the line. Um, And I remember pitching to a CFO and just it not landing and somebody going, mate, they are not interested in in what you're talking about in terms of upside. Their issue is cost control. Um, you know, and it's it's a very simple example, but it's like that stuff isn't actually obvious to us unless we sit down and really think about it and go through that process of what is important to this person. Um, what what are their turnoffs? What's language we best avoid? What's their relationship with competitors? Uh, what's their previous experience with us? What's their level of risk appetite? What's what type of social currency do they want? All of these things, unless you actually sit down and consciously go through the exercise, um, you you often just aren't even aware of 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 these things. So I think that's a great call. The quest the question I had as a follow up to that though is, what about if you're presenting to a room of multiple parties? Um, how does that process potentially change? Um, and how do you maybe make sure that you're able to still tailor the presentation to four or five people, but not over overcomplicate what it is that you're presenting either. Great follow-up question. So when there's a room, and the, the second part of this is when there's people who aren't in the room. Um, one of the dangers is when we start to create presentations for everybody. Um, a, a presentation can never be for everybody. It has to be for somebody. Otherwise, when we try and create these presentations for everyone, they become really bland, bloated, and generic, and no one connects with them. So again, there's this really weird um, paradox that when you create a presentation for a smaller number of people, it engages with a larger number of people. Um, It's the reverse of what we believe to be true. There is someone in every room who is your connector of your content, someone in every room who is the person who is going to do something with your slides after you leave, whether that is to review them, whether that's to present them onto somebody else, whether that's to give you feedback on them, whether that's to take them and put them into a deck, or whether that is to present them directly to somebody else as a result to keep you moving forward. That is your most important person. You have to create content that helps that person become you after seeing your content just once. That is the ultimate sales challenge that every presenter faces that presentation doesn't teach you, presentation training doesn't teach you about. You present once, your slides have a life, a long life after you leave. One person in that room is your connector of that content to other people. And they are the most important person. So we often get caught up with, um, even with your CFO example, we get caught up with, I'm presenting to this person, but they're going to go on and present to the CFO. What do they want? Well, you don't know and you're not going to present to them. Often in an agency client relationship, you won't present to the client. So focus on the person who is going to present to the client and make it easy for them to do your job. Give them slides that they can present. Give them slides headings that help them navigate to the right content and tell them what the slide's about. Make graphics really easy to present. Call out stats on the slide. So if there's a graph with lines going up and lines going down, you note those lines to show what they mean. All of that makes that person more confident and more comfortable with your content and keeps you in the game. That, that's the most important person in the room. Well, I've got a, here's my segue. Um, we had obviously Andrew Bag Sidwell on the podcast um, talking around this whole notion of being built for pitch. Yep. And I remember distinctly the three pillars of being built for pitch were quality thinking, turned around quickly, and packaged to be easily on sold. 
um, which is what you're talking about there of like, make it easy for your clients to pick up the work and on sell it. And this is probably where I think I've had the most frustration as a sales leader over the years is when I'm constantly pushing to simplify the reps to simplify their proposal and people are going, no, this is complex. I can't simplify. It's like, well, how do you expect your customer to do that? How do you expect an agency to to simplify this into one slide if you can't do it? 100%. So that is the segue with Sid, with Bag. Here's the other segue. He actually recorded a little personal message for you, which I'm about to play here. Um, just wishing you the best on the launch of the book. Fishy, Bag here. Baggles, as you call me. Just want to say, man, I've known your story for a very long time now in Sydney. What is it? 10, 12 years. In that time, you've jumped out of planes, out of hot air balloons, base jumped. You've learned to pilot an acrobatic plane. You've taught direct sales and radio, which is probably as tricky and as risky as those other behaviors and endeavors. You've socialized with media people equally as hard as those other endeavors. And now you've written a book. Probably the most toughest thing that you've ever done obviously besides your health victory that you had and you took us all on the journey in the Facebook group. Mate, seriously, as an ex-colleague, as a friend, as a fan, there is nothing you can't do. I look forward to reading the book. I look forward to ripping pages from it and sticking them on the walls and quoting and learning from it and growing and <clears throat> claiming it as my own thoughts like you do with some of mine. <laughs> That sounded a heaps bitchier than it actually was because you're a man I just love and adore and I think you're a tremendous human. So well done and hopefully we can keep hearing you on podcasts like this one. Love you, my brother. Amazing. Thank you, Baggles. <laughs> it's um, it's funny. When I initially reached out to him to record something, he outsourced it to AI. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And uh, some, of those, some of those would have made the final cut if it wasn't for the fact um, – that I thought his heartfelt <laughs> personal <laughs> message did a little better. Um, sure. Let's jump into the next question. Uh, and I know you're a massive proponent of this, as am I. In a world of increasing complexity, um, some people don't like complexity, some like the word detailed, but in a world of increasing complexity and detail, how do people ensure the content in their presentation and proposal is concise? How could you organize content to increase the clarity and impact of the message? So this is, yes, we're, we're both um, proponents of the simplification movement, and it's a big focus of the book, the whole section on this. So you have to ladder it up. Um, a lot of presentations are built around unfolding lots of detail and then trying to bring it all together at the end. And some of that's because we like to present in a way that has a bit of mystery to it. But this often ends up with the audience confused and lost before the big ta-da, where it all comes together. And, and believe it or not, I see a lot of presentations where the presenter even forgets to bring it all together. Um, and there's never the ta-da. So we have to lead with the most important. What do they need to know first? And then unpack what sits underneath this. This is where I talk about ingredients. All the stuff you could talk about being laddered firstly into dishes, which is combinations of ingredients that increase the value, the utility, and the ease with which you can talk about your ideas and somebody else can consume those ideas. Then we put those dishes into groups based on the themes that naturally connect them, and then we find the logical order. Organizing content, logic is always, always, always your friend. Always look for the most logical, easiest way to overview and lay something out. It helps you as a presenter. It helps the audience follow along. 
and it helps them find what they need and remember what you said when they come back to the presentation in days and weeks time. Why do people um, struggle so much with this? Like why, why do people struggle to think about how to simplify something down into like three main points or one main idea? Like what is it, what's the mental barrier here that people need to overcome? So I think this often comes back to the audience piece. So if we're not clear up front on the problem that we're solving and the change that we see as being possible. So the way that we structure um, getting clear, um, if you think about getting clear about a presentation, it's like creating an anchor for a boat. When you put that anchor down, it says, this is where my boat's gonna stay, whatever happens around me. So if we know the audience, we understand the problem that they've got, and we can envisage a change from that problem to a better place, that sets up the frame of our story. I wanna go from A, the problem that they have, Ideally, we make that problem a little bit worse um, and deepen uh, how we can solve a bigger problem for them. And then we go to B, which is our resolution. In the middle of A to B is our content. When we've got that structure in mind, then we can start to work through what goes in and what gets left out. And this, the difficult bit, I think, is what gets left out because there's always going to be more content than you need. And there's always going to be people around you who've got a reason why that bit of content should go in whether it's the person that created it, whether it's a sales priority that someone's going to push in your direction, um, whether it's another division that's trying to sell something off the back of the fact that you have a meeting, there's always going to be stuff coming at you. And that's where the anchor becomes important. When you put down that anchor and said, no, this is my audience. This is the problem that they've got. This is the change that I see as being possible. This is the content that goes between A and B that takes this audience on a journey from that problem to how we solve that problem and take them to a better place. That is the piece that if you work through that, and often people say to me, oh, this audience stuff, oh, it takes so much time up front. Sure. How much time does it take to go back through your content, create a new presentation and represent a second and third time when you confuse the audience the first time? Mm. You get that opportunity. How much time does it take you to go and find a new sale when you lost that last sale because the audience never came back to you with any feedback? Mm. So that little bit of time on the audience, that little bit of time on the problem, that little bit of time prepping for that change that you see as being possible it's kind of the defense. It's the internal shield um, for all the content that's going to come up. you like little star, stars hitting the, uh, the spaceship in Star Wars, you know, when you're flying through the galaxy. That's what content's like inside a media around. There's just stuff coming every, from everywhere. If you can put that shield up and go, no, this is the story I'm trying to tell, then you can have a, uh, a subjective um, conversation. Uh, oh, sorry, not, you, can, you can start to lead that conversation with some subjectivity as opposed to everyone having a valid reason why that content should Yeah, be. and I'm going to hook onto that word because I post a lot about this on LinkedIn, this idea of objective value versus subjective value. Mm. And I think in media, we lean so heavily into objective value. We talk about product, we talk about features, we talk about uh, delivery, we talk about all of these you know, objective measures of value, price, um, CPMs, like spreadsheet metrics. And the subjective value is what comes from the way that you can actually package and position the proposition as a, you know, as a solution to a problem. It's that whole a vitamin versus a painkiller. Um, you know, which of those do, are you sort of more, <laughs> more readily, readily in need for when you need one? So I, I love that idea of, spending time on the audience and hopefully that's kind of the mechanism to then be able to get rid of anything that feels ancillary or feels irrelevant or feels like it's going to create drag in that actual presentation this is probably the next sort of segue for me is and you said it at the start mate great presentation skills don't get crap work over the line right um but there are things you can do to make your presentation more compelling and there are definitely devices and techniques you can use 
with the way you present. So how does somebody still connect emotionally with powerful storytelling? Um, and how does, how does storytelling actually enhance your presentation skills? So the thing with stories, with, with presentations, is that stories don't just happen. You have to structure for a story. And the story that we want to tell in a sales story is to establish first up why they should care. And this, again, is where I see a, a massive deviation. We often start with slides about us, how great we are, how we're number one for something, um, as opposed to starting with the problem. If we start with the audience's problem, we establish why this matters to them. Ideally, we take that problem and we add some of our expertise to that and we um, deepen what could happen to that problem without us. So we um, get into a scenario where without our potential solution that's coming, things could get worse. This creates this sense of in this together. It's an emotional hook right at the beginning of the story. So I talk about a number of different stories and you can think about any uh, movie or book you've read recently. Um, I talk about Cinderella. So in Cinderella, we learn of how awful Cinderella's life is and what she wants is what we want, which is her to escape her evil sisters to a better life. We are now in this together, just through that establishing that Cinderella has this problem of an awful life because she has evil sisters. So when we do that in a presentation, that is the anchor for the start of a great story. And every presentation should and can start there. And so many don't. Now, when we don't start there and we start with how great we are, what that can trigger with certain audience types is for them looking for the flaw in our argument. They're looking for why you might not be number one or sure, you're number one, but. Now compare those two starting points, in this together or looking for, for a flaw in the argument. Which of those is gonna to lead to an audience that's more connected, more engaged and more ready to take your ideas forward? Another one that I would like to be presenting. I love likening it back to narrative and to movies as well, because I think there's something in the way that movies even, even the way that people actually talk about the plots of movies, if you think about the way that somebody who would go and pitch a movie or a script into Hollywood, it's often just distilled down into the absolute simplest core core elements of that story, isn't it? Like you don't have time to sit there and go, we're creating this world and it's going to be like this show and it's going to have these characters and it'll have this plot and this subplot and it'll take place here. Often it's kind of got to be something as simple as, um, you know, like Wade Kingsley used to say with speed, it's die hard on a bus. It's Will Farrell as a NASCAR driver and Talladega Nights. Um, you know, it's it's these really simple log lines that really quickly articulate what that what that kind of storyline is going to be and what that narrative is. But it's got to hook you straight away. Yeah, 100%. And, and every, so I call it the narrative um, for a sales presentation. You want to be able to get down your narrative, which is here's the problem. Here's how, we're, how, how bad it can get, which I call the winter. Uh, we establish our starting point of winter. So the problem gets worse without us. Let's get to winter. That's our start point, which is A. What is the narrative that's going to move us from A to our resolution, which is B? B is the better place that we can envisage getting to. It's the opposite of winter, which is summer. And then in that, you can literally write a set of bullet points, which is your story. So on one page, you can have your story. The client's got this problem. We can see it getting worse without us. Here are the steps we're going to take to move them from A to B, and B is the better place we're going to get to. That is the piece that will then really help you shape your content as you're starting to work through your presentation and put your slides together. I love that. That's so so simple in its um, in its application too, isn't it? Because you could tailor that to any any client brief, really, as long as you're willing to invest the time to really think about it. And again, it's not a huge amount of time. Nothing, everything I do and write and train and coach is about real world application. I hate 
strategic thinking that goes nowhere, workshops that result in lots of post-it notes that no one cares about. We operate in a world where it's briefs are coming in, there's fast turnarounds, we've got to move at pace, um, priorities are changing. We, we have to create things that work in that world and not in this idealistic world. And so I'm super practical. I'm super grounded in terms of the, the, the way that these tools work. They're, they're deliberately tools so that they avoid being rules and they avoid being templates and they avoid being processes. You don't have to use every tool. You don't have to do it exactly the way that I describe it. You don't have to use all of them all of the time. You don't have to follow a process. That's what I was actually curious about, Fishy, was like, are there times where you deviate from that narrative structure? Like I think of somebody used to use the expression, oh God, I wish I could remember who it was, like the James Bond opening. You know, the way a James Bond movie typically opens is you're straight in the action. Uh, Mission Impossible too, like you're straight in the action. It's this massive climax, all this stuff's happening. And then post that scene, it's almost like you go back and you see how it arrived at that scenario. Like are there are there different narrative structures that you can put into a presentation depending on the type of idea or the type of solution you want to pitch? Typically, for most sales presentations, I would say no. So I'll qualify that. So absolutely, if you study story arcs, um, which is really what we're talking about now, and um, I did a story writing course a few years ago, um, six weeks, you don't need to do it because the book summarizes everything I learned in six weeks. Um, <laughs> and if you Google story arcs, prepare to lose a couple of weeks and come out really confused. Um there are lots of story arcs and exactly what you described. You can start with the end and work back to how you got to the ending. You can have highs and lows. With a typical sales presentation, we're trying to get somebody from a problem to a resolution as quickly as possible um, and as cleanly and easily as possible because remembering we want them to become us after seeing this once. When we get into um, things like key, um, keynote presentations, annual upfronts, um, more inspiration type presentations, I think you can be a little bit more clever um, when you're inspiring an audience or trying to entertain an audience. That's slightly different to when I'm I'm presenting to you and at the end of this presentation, you're going to take my set of slides and present them to somebody else. If I've made that super clever and super tricky, um, I'm going to make that really hard for you to do. And that's actually detrimental to my success, which is you probably won't do that. If you're confused, overwhelmed, unsure how to land that and you don't have the confidence that I have in that story and I may have spent a couple of weeks rehearsing that story and practicing it and um, so you kind of got this sort of theatrical pitch versus a hardcore sales presentation where I need to land an idea with an audience to somebody that's going to connect with that content and do something with it in those situations which is the bulk of the work that we tend to do in terms of communicating uh, ideas out into the market we want to get someone through our story as quickly, as cleanly as possible. Well, you've you've highlighted a blind spot, which is I'm all about the self-indulgent way of doing things new and differently. So I will check myself. <laughs> uh, but I do love that. You know, I, I remember listening to a great podcast from a trial attorney. Um, and one of the things that the interviewer asked him, which I thought was fascinating, is, you know, what makes a good lawyer versus a bad lawyer, right? Like some lawyers can charge a premium and they have a massive win rate and other lawyers don't. And he actually said a lot of it comes down to your ability to build your case in a narrative arc. So no different to how you try to persuade in sales. Um, he basically said, if I can assemble the facts of, of the case in a way that it moves through the jury's brain quicker than the other guy can do it, then I'm probably going to win that trial, um, which just really kind of reinforces the the connection between storytelling and the way that that like our um 
our brains seem to actually work and process information. Yeah, 100%. And, and that, so people say to me, oh, you know, if we all start using the same story arc, won't, won't all presentations be the same? No, because the content's different and the person presenting it is different. And if you look at how to structure a book, having gone on a book, I had a book coach, um, you get a chapter structure and you write every chapter in a book and most books will be between nine and 12 chapters. Um, and my question was, well, won't all the chapters look the same? It's like, well, actually, no, because by the time you populate the content, then you move a few things around, even though every chapter is structured the same, help the audience move through the chapter they'll feel very different and that's part of the creativity right like i'm a songwriter and a musician outside of what i do in my professional life every song fundamentally has the same structure intro verse pre-chorus chorus verse chorus bridge breakdown chorus right every song i mean there's variations of that but for for most 90 percent of pop songs they all follow almost an identical structure um Yet the creativity is how you make that different and fresh. Um, and it's the way that you deliver the music within that structure and framework that actually makes it creative. So um, that's a that's probably a good call out there too for anyone who's worried about it seeming templatized or getting stale. The creativity comes from making it feel fresh, even if the structure and underlying foundation is the same. Amazing. And how good is it to have that structure? So how, how, much, how much more effective are you as a musician having that structure to work with than if you were doing jazz and trying to improv every time yeah well i me particularly as a jazz player terrible because i'd be hitting a lot of wrong notes um (laughs) which which i know you get a bit more permission to do in jazz but uh (laughs) hey um speaking of creativity i've got another message from a very creative uh individual here mr michael dargan i'm gonna play it for you now fishy dargs here very excited for you on the new book in fact have it right here. Cannot wait to get stuck into it this weekend. Very excited for you. Congratulations, mate. Thanks, Dogs. Wow. See, there's simplicity into the point. Hey, 10 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I, <love it. laughs> um, I don't know if he actually had the book, but I could hear him flicking through pages. He does. So. He has posted a picture of it, which is uh, I'm loving seeing people's posts. And I'm, I'm actually looking forward to Bagel's comment to seeing when I walk around offices to see pages torn out and stuck on people's walls. That will be, um, I think, the ultimate... Um, uh, sort of reward for having written the book. Well, when Doug said the power of audio, um, you know, with the flicking of the pages, I said, you should have said you were coming to us live from the uh, DJ booth of the Playboy Mansion or something like that, because <laughs> who would we be to uh, to disprove that? Um, okay, so let's jump into the last couple of questions before we get into the listener question. Um, and I think we've kind of touched on this throughout, like simplification is easier said than done. But what are some of the techniques that you personally use to distill down a lot of information into its simplest form? So maybe I'll throw a scenario at you to, to, to make this fresh. I've come to you with a 74-slide deck. Um, I'm saying everything in this deck is absolutely sacrosanct. It's super important that we include it. And your job is to ruthlessly cut my slides down. Um, how do you typically approach that type of scenario? So the first thing we would do in that situation, it's a great, it's a great setup, um, is we'd come out of the presentation and I'd ask you to tell me the story. What are you trying to do here? What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the better place we can get someone to? So what's the outcome we think we can deliver for them? Now give me the key points that you want to tell in that story to get me from A to B. And in doing that, we would immediately get a sense of the story and we'd call out what I call highlights, some key points that we need to make and some sound bites that should become the slide headings or the most important points on the slide. So we would write probably in Word or Post-it notes or on a whiteboard that story. Um, We would stay away from slides as long as possible 
and have a conversation. And you can do this in the office between two people. You can have this little thing called collaboration where you literally say, hey, I'm working on this presentation. I'm trying to get from here to here. This is what I'm thinking of saying. Does that make sense? Then go back to the slides and go, oh my God, that is not what I'm doing in my slides. Now you can start culling slides. Now we can go back to your 72, 74 slides and go, okay, which of these slides in what order tell that story? And which of these slides are completely irrelevant? Because now we've gone from me saying to you, don't use that slide, I don't like it. And you go, I don't care that you don't like it. I've worked for hours on that cat picture with that headline. And going, actually, that doesn't fit the story. And we both agree. And particularly when slides exist, it can get super aggressive. I know because I do coaching around slides a lot. And people get super defensive with me around, well, you can't delete that slide. I'm like, Why not? Because it's a good slide. Why is it a good slide? Because I worked for hours on it. Well, that doesn't make it a good slide. It's gone. And they put it back and I'm deleting it again. So getting out of the presentation into that narrative and getting that high level view of the story that you're trying to tell, then going back into that. And remember, it starts with the audience. What's the problem that they want? What's the better place we think we can take them to? What's the story I would tell? If we were just having a coffee and you were narrating your 74 slides to me, you're not going to remember all the points on 74 slides. You're going to come up a level naturally in the conversation. I'm going to capture that. And that's what we're going to use to organize the slides. I love that. And and so just expanding on that with this next question, which is around this idea of chain of custody. So it's something I don't think we talk anywhere near enough about in media sales, probably I'd say particularly in agency sales, whereby the person that the media sales professional might be presenting to or trying to persuade is not the ultimate decision maker. Um, So the scenario would be, it's a competitive pitch, you might make your way onto the recommendation, but then the agency then has to take that and on present that to the client who may be a more analytical buyer, maybe a technical buyer, maybe, maybe more swayed by emotion. I know you talk a little bit about tailoring to your audience and trying not to kind of create a presentation for anyone. Um, how do you make sure that in those types of scenarios, the work is easy to on present and on sell, but is also tailored to the varying stakeholders that might actually review that piece of work and ultimately sign off on it? So one start point is to ask the audience who's going to do the presentation what the next audience needs. Um, okay. So so have a step ahead. Um, if you know uh, if you know you don't know much about the second audience, try and inquire about that. Remember, we're we're trying to empower that first audience to become us to take our content forward. If they can't do that first job for us and take our slides, nothing will happen. So if we know that the second, maybe we do know that the second audience, the client audience is super analytical, but if our first audience isn't given the right level of content to enable them to engage with that audience, and we're not going to get the chance to do that, our content isn't going to go in front of them. No one will ever present something they're confused by, they're overwhelmed by. If there's something on a slide, there's an agency person presenting to a client, even a client presenting within a client. If you're a marketing director presenting to a CEO or a sales director or a group of salespeople, and you're not sure about something on a slide, be it a stat, be it a graphic of how things move from um, different um, data providers through an ecosystem. If you're not confident with that, you either delete the slide or you take the thing off the slide. Both of those things are bad. So we have to create slides that enable the people we present to, to present on. Slide headings, making key points visible, make it clear what the slide is about, calling out key stats on slides, making visuals, almost a visual on a slide if you're going to show a data ecosystem of how first-party data flows through your platform into somebody else, it literally needs to be a, a visual that sells itself. Then the person presenting that can add to that. 
What you don't want is the person presenting taking away from your content because you've lost control of the narrative that's going forward and potentially you've lost key slides being presented. I love that, mate. That's, that is brilliant. And I think this is a particular area where you see media organizations, um, maybe a bit of process conflict whereby you might have somebody who builds the document, but then entrusts a sales team to actually go and present that in market. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think there's always that healthy tension between, no, no, we need to make sure that this makes its way into the marketplace because this messaging is important. And the salesperson might sort of inherently go, well, no, we've only got 10 to 15 minutes of attention with this client. Therefore, I'm going to pick my battles and do this you know, just focus on this. It's, um, I don't think it's an area that anybody has nailed. I think they just need to get you into do a, do a bit of a workshop with them, my friend. <laughs> yeah, a few of those going on. And 100%, there's a lot of, um, let's call them go-to-market decks, um, but you can still tune a, a business-wide narrative to be audience-specific, whether you do that in a voiceover, whether you voice over audience-specific points to help them bring that slide into their world, or whether you just change the heading. You can leave core content alone that might be the protected space that you can't change, um, but change the heading. Make the heading benefit-led for the audience you're presenting to so that the content on the slide connects to them and they feel comfortable presenting that slide on. I think that's a great hack, mate. I think headings are one of those missed opportunities in a lot of proposals too. Like if you can make a point with every heading, you're going to find that it it very, very quickly starts to make your work way more persuasive. Just that, like that one simple tweak of don't just put a generic heading up, literally make a point with what you're saying in the heading and then prove it in the body or summarize what it means. Um, that simple tweak alone, I've seen media sales professionals make and I've seen their, their win rates increase 20, 30% just off the back of that one tweak. If you do nothing else after this podcast, go and look at your presentations and get rid of every heading that says our approach, why we love it, coming up next any heading that doesn't have a benefit or doesn't describe what's on the slide or doesn't make the most important point on the slide in the heading should go mm. just do that you had an enjoyable hour from this time together <laughs> there we go i love that I, I think actually it's funny you know when um we're talking a lot about narrative um here but one of the things i remember a lot of screenwriters use as a device to make sure that every scene naturally flows to the next scene is they won't write a scene if you can't use the word therefore hmm. or except I think it was like except you know so it's like David goes to the store to buy some chips except he runs into somebody therefore they so it's actually this device to make sure that everything naturally flows and I think if you look at a lot of presentations if you can't put that therefore or because or except in between it, it it's probably where it feels a bit unfocused yeah nice I like that. So we've got another or well, a final uh, special guest. Uh, Mr. Brian Gallagher has actually submitted a question. So for those of you unfamiliar with Brian, which would be nobody, he's the former chief sales officer of SCA, leaves quite a legacy there. Um, he has sent a little bit of a message and he's also going to be our listener question. So we'll jump into that now. I can't ask my sales manager that. Congratulations, Fishy, on the launch of your new book, What It Takes to Create Winning Presentations. Um, it will certainly do what it says on the cover, mate. Uh, having had some great experience with you and your formula in action at SEA, I know the book is going to be a huge success. Uh, in terms of uh, the listener question of the week, um, I've got one for you. Um, I think um, by way of background, our sales teams need some tips 
and keeping their focus and perspective um, in the current climate. And pressure is coming from all directions, uh, client expectations, cost control, and of course, revenue generation. What are your top tips to the teams right across the media sector today to maintain maintain their sort of focus, energy levels, and, um, and forward momentum in their work? Mm, great question. Thanks, BG. Thank you for the uh, the plug. Um, and it has been great working with BG um, at SCA. We've had a great couple of years together. I say, I say it every time because uh, I was in commercial radio for 11 years on the other side of SCA and uh, that sales team were formidable, formidable competitors under his leadership. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so the question, um, focus on how you help people outside your organisation. So everything we've talked about with audience, solving problems, the needs of people, distill it down to its simplest form. How can you help them? If your orientation is a market orientation to solving other people's problems, to helping other people, then the work you produce will be commercially smart work and you will win more as a result of that work. You will, if we talk about client expectations, cost controls, pressures, that's about helping people. If you know an agency is under pressure for resource, how do you make your presentation succinct, short, to the point and give them one slide they can use in their presentation. If you know your client has X, Y, Z problem, how do you tune into that and solve that problem? If we have this orientation of helping people, then we immediately change the perspective of going from, I need to sell this to what does my audience need? And whether you do the audience work, whether you get into the mindset of the audience, which personally I think is really, really important. If you just have a help orientation, a number of things off the back of that will change which I genuinely believe will keep you focused and change your fortunes. I love that, mate. I think it's it's interesting when we talk about this whole notion of solution selling, um, or you know, in your in your case, you're talking about solving problems, um, identifying what the pain is, identifying what that winter looks like without inaction, and then getting them through to the resolution. And I've always been really fascinated by this idea of solution selling being something that a lot of salespeople can pay lip service to. But in tough economic times, it's as if that whole methodology can fall away. And if you think about it, um, tough economic times, that's when solution selling should actually be at its most powerful and potent in the marketplace because a sales professional is dealing with a customer base that have a number of problems, be it um, contracting budgets, be it more competition, be it cost control, be it difficult, um, you know, uh, a difficult consumer spending environment, difficult trading environments. Um if anything, like solution selling and, and identifying pain points for clients would feel more pronounced in a tough time and would be more potent if harnessed and, and executed the right way. 100%. And that's it. If you keep a, an external orientation, because the danger is you become internal, you are under pressure, uh, you feel the pressure, you try and sell harder because you try and sell harder, you become more self-orientated because you become more self-orientated, you become, the presentations become more about you, and, da, 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 da. and it's a it's a negative spiraling ladder as opposed to a positive one. Um, so if you just start the day with a simple orientation of, I have great products, great solutions, and I'm here to help people outside the business with those products and solutions, you will create narratives, you will build stories, you will deliver presentations, and you will have conversations with people um, that help them move forward. Fantastic. Well, there you go, BG. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that nails the question that you put through. Um, mate, I've got two things before we wrap up. Um, and I hope you'll indulge us with one of them. But the first one was you've looked after uh, the audience with some potential free copies of the book and also some 
heavily priced incentive copies of the book. Would you mind giving us some details on that? For sure. So um, we're going to do a, a podcast promo. Uh, who doesn't love a promo? So the first five people who send an email to Jamie saying, give me a copy of winning presentations from Fishy, um, I will send you a copy. Um, and then for everybody else that doesn't make the first five uh, and doesn't get their golden ticket, um, you can go to my website, which is davidfish.com.au and use the code podcast30 and that will get you 30% off the purchase cost of the book. And it is currently uh, more cost effective to buy direct um, although I am on Amazon and Booktopia and all of the usual um, book publishing sites um, you can buy direct off my website and use that code uh, and you'll save yourself 30% I love that well I'm going to put my email address into the show notes but uh, it's jamie at boostmedia.com.au that's jamie j-a-m-i-e at boostmedia.com.au first five people get a free copy and I will send your address to Fishy to send those books out mate can't thank you enough for being on the show one of the things that um i know you opened the book with and i would love if you could just give us a bit of a a taste of is there's this amazing anecdote um around a big agency pitch really high stakes um that i guess for want of a better term everyone kind of shat the bed on (laughs) um would you would you mind just indulging us and just giving us a little bit of a, a a snippet of what that was all about because i think this is the type of thing that just really hooked me straight into the book when i read it (laughs) Uh, it's one of my great failures. Um, so I'm glad you love it. Um, <laughs> Let's end on the low point. Yeah. What did you hear? Yeah. <laughs> I was probably one of the main advocates of why it went wrong. Um, so we were pitching for BMW. I was head of strategy at an agency in London. Um, we didn't have a car client. See, I was super excited about having a car client. Car clients are very lucrative. You do great creative work. So there's a lot of pressure to win this piece of business. And everyone had a point of view about this presentation. What should go in it? Um, the cleaner was giving us ideas at 2 o'clock in the morning, which we included. Um, the presentation got big and unwieldy. And at the heart of it, we were never really clear on the client's problem. And we made this presentation all about us, how creative we were, how much we love cars, uh, how strategic we were, which was my very long sec- section. We were super indulgent in the way we presented it. It was all about us. We loved presenting it. We thought we were amazing. Uh, we lost the client about 20 minutes in. Uh, we presented for 90 minutes, the last 60 of which were super painful because they just wanted us to leave. We wanted to leave. Um, and it was so bad that we didn't even get feedback to tell us that we didn't win. Oh. <laughs> so there is a bit more detail on that in the book, but that is the story. It's the story of starting with not knowing what the audience wanted, not being clear on the audience's problem, and therefore creating a presentation that was all about us. And you know what's scary is how familiar that felt when I read it too. <laughs> um, how, how familiar I'm sure it would feel to everybody. So um, thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you for your insights today, mate. Congrats again on the book. I think there's a lot of people, um, you know, there's only a handful who recorded, but there's a lot of people who I know are, are massive advocates of you, your thought leadership, what you're doing in this space. So thank you for writing the book. I'd highly encourage anybody in the audience to go and get a copy. It is going to make you better at your job. And uh, David, thank you for spending some time just to give us a little bit of a taste of what we can expect in the book today. That's been amazing. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. Um, And I look forward to sending out uh, both the three copies to your listeners um, and supporting them on their journeys. (laughs) 